Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment and thank you for tuning into our church's podcast. This week's sermon is from our series Alpha and Omega. To learn more information about Sturkey Hills, you can find us at sturkey.church. Oh, and don't forget to hit subscribe to our podcast so that you can always stay up to date with our latest messages. We're so thankful for all that God has been doing in the life of our church and the part that you play in it. Thank you for listening and have a blessed day. Well, amen. Thank you, worship team. Man, that was so good. And if you missed the opportunity right there, just to go before the Jesus who died to save you, the God who created you, and just love on him and receive his love into your life, you missed a golden opportunity. The worship team, I thank you so much for leading us into worship of our great God. I am thankful, man, and I hope you were blessed in that. Well, we're still in the series called Alpha and Omega, and we're in uh, Revelation chapter 2. So I want you to open your Bibles, open your device to that place, uh, and I want to tell you just where we are in case you've missed anything. Uh, Everybody wants to dissect, wants to uh, define, and wants to uh, uh, give an outline for the book of Revelation. Well, God has given us all that we need, and and in fact, Jesus told John the Revelator, I'm going to give you a simple outline. It's found in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, here's the three major components to the book of Revelation. First, I want you to write, John, I want you to write what you have seen. That is found in chapter 1. And that is a view, a fresh view of the resurrected, glorified Jesus. Entirely different from Jesus in the Gospels. This is what Jesus, who Jesus is now, who he is forever, and what we will experience one day when we stand before him. He says, so I want you to write what you've seen. That's Jesus, chapter 1. And then he says, I want you to write the things which... That is the church age. That's from uh, Acts at the inception of the church until uh, the church is no more on this planet. That's what I truly believe. And it's found in chapters 2 and 3. And that's where we are. And then lastly, he said the third part of the outline, I want you to write the things which must take place after this. After the church age, that's found in chapters 4 through 22. Includes a whole lot in there. Seven years of tribulation gets a whole lot of verbiage. And we'll be looking at that in the future. Now, these churches are literal churches that a postman in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, would deliver these seven scrolls, these seven letters. He would leave, uh, he would, these, these letters would be given from the Isle of Patmos, written by John the Revelator, given to a uh, postman, so to speak, and he would go to Asia Minor. He would start at Ephesus on the, the lower southwest uh, coast of modern-day Turkey, and he would make his way in a circle, delivering these seven letters to seven very real churches of that day. All of them have different personalities. All of them have a different place in their walk with Jesus. And all of them define more than just a church, a real church of that age. They also paint a picture of the church throughout the ages. How it began as this vibrant, alive, in love with Jesus church. And it moves from a church that just is sold out for Jesus to a place where they just left their first love. That's Ephesus. They left their first love. And then he, as he moves on up the coast, he finds himself in Smyrna. When you take your eyes off of Jesus, when you lose your first love, two things are going to happen. If you are a child of God, got a visitor there, get thee behind me, I'll put some ninja, I'll put some Jesus ninja on you, all right? He, if you take your eyes off Jesus, here's what's going to happen as a child of God. If you're born again, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you are a child of God in Jesus Christ and you get disobedient, he will discipline you. Yeah, the Bible says if, if you've never been chastened or disciplined by God, you cannot consider yourself a child of God. 
He is your heavenly father. And just like we're instructed to discipline our children, not a fun thing. But we do that to help them. Now, here's what happens. We move away from our first love. We begin to act like we're not supposed to act, live like we're not supposed to live as an individual in the church or as a church, and Jesus will discipline us. Now, what happens if our eyes are not on him, we don't receive that discipline as a teaching. We receive that discipline as pain and suffering. And so what happens instead of returning and learning what it is that he wants us to learn, we move further away and we focus on our suffering. Well, when we start suffering, we look for anything to help our suffering. So the church at Smyrna has declined from the church that lost its first love, the cold-hearted church, to a suffering church. Now, instead of moving back in love with Jesus, what they do is they focus, man, I'm hurting, you hurting, yeah, we're all hurting, let's find some relief. And as the devil would know, he shows up and he's got some relief. We find it in the church at Pergamos, it's the compromising church. He says, listen, I know you're hurting. I can help you with your hurting. Instead of believing what you're believing, let's put some other things in there to consider. Compromise your faith, and you'll feel better living in this world. I'm a, test- I'm a walking testimony. That's real. When you're suffering for your faith, when you're suffering because you're under the discipline of God, the devil will move in if you're not careful, and he'll move you further from God instead of closer to God. So now it's a compromised church, a church we don't want to be. Now we move to a little bitty church in a little bitty town, the smallest of all the churches, the smallest of all the cities, and yet it gets more scripture than any other church of all of the seven. It's the church at Thyatira. Now, I just want you to know, I hear this sometimes people say, I I go right out there to greet everybody because I'm so thankful. I cannot help myself. I want to tell everybody in here when you show up, I want to say, hey, I'm glad you're here. And when you leave, I want to say, hey, thanks for coming. I hope you received a blessing. I just want to love them because I love you guys, and I appreciate y'all being here. But I get this all the time. You read my mail? I I don't even read my own mail. It's junk, you know. What do you mean? I'm reading your mail. That message was for me. No, it is not. You need to understand that what, what the Lord speaks into your heart from a message from his word is the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you, not, not the pastor standing up in this circle, in this box. I chew on God's word like a cow chews on cud, for, but I'll start today preparing for next. Next week, I've been preparing for Kyle knows for a month. I, I chew on it, and it's all for me. All you get is a little bit of overflow of what I've been chewing on. Okay, and there's some weeks I say, Lord, just take me on home. You know, okay, I understand. I'm pitiful. Just take me on home. That's how it is. Now I get to the church at Thyatira. I thought last week was for me. Now I'm studying Thyatira, Thyatira, and I'm like, nope, this one's me. Now, here's the truth. I really believe we as a church are at this place. I really do, and I want to explain why. Now, here here he says, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you about this church. I call Thyatira the unfaithful church. Now, let me go ahead and explain something. One of the things that they are commended for is the fact that they have faith. But then we keep reading and we find out that although they have faith, they are unfaithful. Now, I want you to understand, is he still on me? He's on my neck. Did I get him? Where's he at now? Somebody tell me before it eats me. <laughs> Y'all are just sitting there, okay? You're not paying attention. I'm going to get on out of here, Satan, all right? He don't want you to hear this today, I'm telling you, but I'm going to preach it. Amen, all right? Now, Thyatira is the church that's unfaithful, meaning this. When Jesus is no longer enough in your covenantal relationship with him, 
You see, church, we are betrothed. We are engaged to the Lord Jesus. He one day will be our forever husband. The church will be his forever bride. And when we no longer find our Jesus to be enough, we become, even though we have placed faith in him, we become unfaithful and we look for and to something else. That's what Thyatira does, and that's what we're on the threshold of. I really believe it. Now, he, he begins, as we've done all of these churches, Dr. Jesus is going to show up and give a physical exam of the church. And he's going to begin in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And he's going to begin, he says, to the angel, which, which was defined in chapter 1, the angels are the pastors or the spokesmen to the church at Thyatira, write the following. Now, let me just explain Thyatira. This is why he's writing this letter, why he chose this church. Thyatira is not a coastal city with a huge harbor. It's not a, a, a religious center. It's not an academic center like some of the others that had 200,000 books. Uh, it doesn't have a great theater there, so it's not, it's not there for entertainment. Um, it, it, it's just a little town, but it has something going for it. Its claim to fame is that it is a, a blue-collar city. It produces things, and it's known for producing purple, the color purple, the dye purple. They make purple fabrics. And because that was that brought wealth to that little city, they begin to branch out and manufacture other things. So it becomes like a little industrialized town, a blue-collar city who made uh, pottery, iron products, clothing or cloth, and other things that the world would need. And that's what kept them alive. Now, in this place, it was, it was also pagan, just like that whole land, meaning ungodly at every turn. And yet in, this, in the middle of this industrialized, blue-collar city, pagan, worshiping every other god that you can imagine or create, in this town, Jesus planted a little church, all right? Now, this little church is, is, is commissioned to infiltrate this pagan world. Now, let me tell you what that looks like. If you work in Thyatira, there were guilds there, G-U-I-L-D-S, guilds. Um, a guild is like if you are in the purple fabric business, you have a guild. It's like a union, okay? Oh, you want to be protected in your labor? You want to make the most money? You want to not have to be under Obamacare? Then you're going to sign up for this purple dye guild. All right, now each one of these guilds, history says, had a god, a lowercase g god, that they would erect, that they would put up, that they would worship. So they would have a union, a guild meeting, and part of that meeting would be that they would worship some foreign pagan god. Often those pagan gods included things like um, mind-altering substances. It included things like orgies and sexual immorality. It included things like sacrifice. It included all kinds of immorality and adultery in its relationship to the true and living God. Okay? Just pagan stuff. All right? So this is who this church is. Now, it's kind of like if you don't want to be a part of the guild, I'm sorry, you're not going to be protected. If you don't want to be a part of the union, you're not going to be protected. I remember when I started college at Tennessee Tech in 1985. And I went to Tennessee Tech, and as soon as I got down there, they started wanting me to be in a fraternity, okay? And I was enticed. I thought, man, here's why. Because they said, if you, really, if you want to be connected to get the greatest job that you can get when you get out, you need to be connected to a fraternity, 
Okay, because we've got people who were in this fraternity who are already in the business world, and they'll hook you up. Not only that, you're a freshman, you need a circle of friends. You need somebody to come alongside you and help you. We have study halls, whatever, okay? They have keg parties. That's what they had, okay? They said, you can come in here, man. We're going to come around you. And I was enticed, and it's only going to cost you $250 a month. Okay, and I was enticed, and my, my parents, they were not so enticed. In fact, my parents told me, we're paying for your college, aren't we? I said, yeah, you are. If you join a fraternity, we're not paying for your college. That's a no-brainer, okay? Even an idiot like myself knew that was not a good plan, so I said, I'm not joining. Now, come to find out, I would go to those fraternity meetings, okay, and it would turn into a, a drunken party, often full of immorality. It was not a good thing. My parents saw it. I didn't see it. And here's the problem. In Thyatira, it looked like that. If you want to be a part of the in circle, you're going to have to embrace the things that we embrace. And you can claim to be a Christian, and that's fine. You can go to church on Sunday morning. You can sing a little worship song, open up God's Word, listen to a preacher, tell people about Jesus. You can do that. But you got to do this too. Now, that's what it looks like when a church becomes unfaithful or when a Christian becomes unfaithful. Now, when he speaks to them, he, Jesus reaches back into chapter 1 now, and he says, I've got a descriptive phrase I'm going to pull out of chapter 1, and I'm going to assign it to this particular church. Last week, remember, they needed truth. And he says, I'm going to speak, and I'm going to describe myself as the one who has a double-edged sword extending from my mouth. That is his truth. This week, he says, for you, church at Thyatira, to you, church at Sturkey Hills, to you, Christian, if the shoe fits, wear it, if you have an ear to hear, let him hear. He says, he says, this is a solemn pronouncement of the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a fiery flame and whose feet are like polished bronze. He says, church, see these eyes that look like flame? They pierce and penetrate to the absolute core of your existence. They, there is no confusion. There is no hiding the truth. and There is no hiding who you are. I look straight into your soul and know whether you are honest or dishonest. I know when you tell a lie. I know when you tell the truth. I know when you do good. I know when you do bad. I know it all. I see it all because I have these flame uh, flaming eyes that pierce and penetrate and cut right to the core of who you are. I don't even like knowing that. I don't even like knowing for me. Now, I like knowing that he knows that about you, okay? I mean, I, I, I can proclaim. I like telling you he's watching you, okay? But if he's watching you, he's watching me. Sometimes we think, oh, I can get by with this. God's busy running the world. He's busy making the stars shine. He's busy reminding the sun to uh, proclaim its glory. He's not worried about little old me. Listen to me. He's worried about little old you. God takes inventory of your heartbeat. God listens to the breath you breathe because then he knows how much oxygen to supply because you just used some of what he already supplied. And all the while, he's watching, and we just live like there is no God. This is who this people had become. This is who we have become. God is watching. He says, he says, I know the truth. And he says, in, in chapter 1, he said, I'm the son of man, which is his number one description of himself in the Gospels. Now he doesn't say, I'm, I am the son of man. But I want to be real clear. You understand what that means. He says here, I am the son of God. I am not lowercase g, pagan God you worship. 
I am the son of God. And I am watching with my eyes what you do, how you live, what you say, what you speak. And then he says, and it's in that truth, in that awareness of, 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 of no false information, in the awareness of 100% truth, he says, I'm wearing these shoes that are like polished, uh, heated bronze, which in the Bible uh, is judiciary. It means he is the judge. He says, I will judge you based on what I know to be true. And you can play games with your wife. You can play games with your husband. You can play games with your children. Children, you can play games with your parents. You can play games with whoever you want to play. But I see the truth, I know the truth, and I judge based on the truth. And you cannot get around it. Now, that's what he's saying to the church at Thyatira. And I'm studying this, and I'm like, well, Lord Jesus, you know, what, do you, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for me? It's bad news in a way. And it's good news in a way. Let me explain what I mean. He begins to define who they are. And he says in verse 19, church at Thyatira, and I'm going to assign it to the church at Sturkey Hills because I honestly believe this shoe fits us. I honest, honestly believe we should have an ear to hear what he's saying to this church. He says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and your steadfast endurance. In fact... Your more recent deeds are greater than your earlier ones. So he commends them, okay? And I got to thinking about it. He says, I know your love. What, what, what is that? What does he mean by that? Well, you remember the Pharisees asked Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Trying to trip him up. Because they knew if he picked one or the other, he, it would be wrong. And he says, well, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So I was thinking about this and I was praying. I said, now Jesus, do we love, do we love people like we should love people? Do we proclaim love? Do we, are we a distribution center for love? Do we love you? Do we love others? And I, I'm, I feel, I feel like we do. We're not perfect, but we really try to love. I, I believe we love each other. I hear all the time. You know why I like to come to Turkey? Why? When I show up, I just feel, man, just welcome. That's love. I just, when I'm in there and I worship and I hear the message, I just feel love. Well, I'm glad. You should. Okay? But it's beyond that. It's outside these four walls. On Monday nights, we take our, our trailer downtown under the bridge and feed the homeless. We'll feed a couple hundred homeless usually, give about 50 showers to the homeless, and we just love on them in Jesus' name. Do they look good? No. Look kind of like y'all. Okay? Do they smell good? Not necessarily. Do they, do they have a big, bright, gleaming white smile? No, not a lot of teeth down there under the bridge. Okay? Why do we do it? Why do we do that? Because Jesus said, love God and love people. And we go down there. And, I'm, I'm, and, and, and I just felt the Lord saying, keep on loving like that. When I put a challenge before you, you move on it in faith, and I'll open up the doors of provision, and you demonstrate. You be the hands and feet of Jesus, and it's going to be good. And, and I feel like, okay, we're, we're doing that. And who in here served down there at uh, 11B Mission? Who served down there? He, you know what's funny? Watch this. You, go to, you think, I'm, yeah, I'm going downtown. I'm going to be a blessing. I'm going down there to be a blessing. No. You go down there to be a blessing, and you walk away warm and fuzzy, full of blessing. But why? Because Not because of them. Not because of us. Because we're being obedient to the call to love. So I'm thinking, okay, church at Thyatira, church at Sturkey Hills, we're loving. Then he goes on and he says, 
I know your faith. Well, in Romans 1.17, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And I'm thinking, okay, God, do we have faith? Do we trust you? And we do. And all the time, he places open doors before us without provision. I'm learning this. It's beautiful. That, That money often follows mission. A lot of times we hold on, we say, well, I don't have the money to do that, so we're not going to do it. And if God is calling us to step forward in faith, we step forward in faith, and when we get there, his provision is already waiting for us. And we see it all the time, and it's wonderful. So I'm sitting there, okay, God, I I, I believe we do have more than mustard seed faith. We do trust you. So, So he didn't convict me of faith. And then he says, I know your works. And James 2 says, you know, you, you talk about having faith and you don't have any works. You want to show me your faith? Show me your, by your works. I'll show you my, my faith by my works. And I'm saying, we work, you know. Your pastor works. You all work. We serve. We, we do good deeds. I, we try. Matthew 5, 16 says, to let your light shine among men that they'll see your good works or your good deeds and they'll glorify your Father in heaven. I don't think we try to take credit for the work we do. I think we give the glory to God. And so the Holy Spirit did not convict me of this. And then he says this to the church at Thyatira. He says, I know your persistence. I know that you keep on keeping on. I think we do. I'm reading scripture and it says, Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Let me give you an example of the pastor's endurance and perseverance in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I preach for a result every week. I'll be honest with you. I preach, I preach like every one of y'all are lost. I hope you're not, okay? And I don't think you are, but I preach every week as if everybody in here is lost. And I preach with the purpose that the Holy Spirit would invite somebody to be saved and radically changed from a sinful condition before God to a place where we have a right standing in Jesus. And most often, crickets. You know what I'm saying? Not a whole lot of people come forward to get saved. And people ask me, does that never bother you? You know, when you, you just, you know, you preach your guts out and nobody gets saved, does it bother me? No, I'm just playing games. Doesn't bother me. Yeah, it eats at my soul. But then I have to take it to the Lord, and I've done this. I say, Lord, what is that? Is everybody saved? Are we not good at bringing in lost people? Because if we're all saved, we're not doing a good job because the world is lost. They need to be under the gospel, okay? So what do I do with that Lord? And the Lord says this. He reminds me. He has to remind me because I want to own it. He says, look, 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 you couldn't save you. I had to reach in and save you. You can't save any of them. I have to do that. So here's what we'll do. We'll make a, a deal right here. You preach. I'll save on my timetable. You just plant seeds. You just cultivate, plant seeds, and then if I want to show you a harvest, I'll show you a harvest. But it won't be yours. It'll be mine. And so I have to wash my hands up and say, okay, God, I'm just going to do what I do. So I'll preach my guts out, you know, because this may be my last opportunity. Okay, if he takes me home tomorrow, I want you to know I'm going to heaven. I want you to know you can get there too. That's my goal in life. And, and so I am persistent in that, even when there seems to be no response. As a church, we keep pressing forward. We're not throwing in the towel. Difficulties. We, we have difficulties all the time in ministries that we perform. I want you to know ministry is messy and it is not easy and it is not well-defined. Rachel, you know, being on the mission field, it's, it's, it, it, it's a moving target. Okay. But God is in control. So we just keep pressing forward. We don't get discouraged. And I'm thinking, okay, we're okay in that. You see, Thyatira was a growing 
glowing church that was doing some good things. They, 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 were, they were trying to be the church in a pagan world for Jesus. They were trying to make an impact. And so he says, now, you got that going for you, church? And then the word that we hate to hear, but. Jesus says, you got love, you got faith, you got service, you got perseverance. But church at Thyatira, church at Sturkey Hills, Christian individual, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and by her teaching deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, let me, let me unpack this a little bit. Do I really believe, do, do, do most teachers and commentators believe that there was really a woman at the church at Thyatira called Jezebel? Probably not. Here's why. Jezebel is a, uh, a person in the Old Testament who was smooth. She was uh, slick. She was articulate. She was well-received, and she was of the devil. And she infiltrated uh, the worship of Yahweh, the true and living God, by bringing in from the outside a Baal, who was the god of fertility, and saying, listen, you know, let's, let's just worship God, and that's cool, but let's just set Baal up right beside your God, and we'll just worship them both together. They became adulterous. They became unfaithful to God. And, and here in this passage, it's the same thing. So listen, is there a woman named Jezebel? Maybe, but quite honestly, here we are, 2018. Anybody in here name your kid Jezebel? If not, why? Because if you even thought, well, Jezebel, that's got a good ring to it. Somebody who is even remotely familiar with Scripture would say, I don't think that's a good idea. No, I was thinking maybe if it's a girl, Jezebel, and if it's a boy, maybe Judas. That would be a good one. No, you don't do it. So I don't think it was any different 2,000 years ago, AD 95. I don't think somebody would have named their daughter Jezebel. If they were, they were whacked out. But this woman, I really believe it is a woman, she shows up. And what she does is she brings something else to the table. When God is no longer enough, we start looking for something else. Just like it is in a marriage relationship. You have two people that are married together, uh, that are married, and they are together, but when one is unhappy because the other one isn't fulfilling everything about them. What they do is they begin to look elsewhere, okay? They become unfaithful to this one, and they start looking for something else. And that's what the church does. When the church is no longer satisfied with Jesus, they start looking somewhere else. Now, let me tell you what it looks like in today's culture. We no, no longer want to just believe this. We want to manipulate and massage and make this say what is comfortable not only to ourselves with our own personal proclivities, but we want to make it comfortable to a world that is pagan and does not know God. And we don't want to be too uncomfortable because if we, if we make it uncomfortable, they're going to say what? You are what? Intolerant. You're judgmental. Let me, let me tell you something about God. Ready? He's intolerant. You, oh, you're narrow-minded. Let me tell you something about my God. He's narrow, not minded, but he's narrow in his scope of truth. Okay, God has a rule book, and when we color outside the lines of his rule book, he is intolerant. Yeah. It's just the way it is. And, and so what we do is we say, well, um, this word has told me a lot, but I just don't think it tells me anything. So in the church, it might, like, might look like this. 
you know, we need more than the redemptive power of Jesus. We need more miracles. So we're going to search for signs and wonders. Okay, we're going to look for, for uh, healings, miraculous healings. Listen, God still miraculously heals all the time. Okay, If it was not for his miraculous healing, you would not even be sitting here. He has his miraculous hand of healing upon us all. Okay, doesn't mean bad things won't happen because he is sovereign. But what we do is we look for more. There's a culture out there that wants to search for more signs and wonders, and so they say, oh, I want to see a glory cloud. There's this thing called the glory cloud. If you get really close to God and you experience him fully in worship, a cloud manifests itself and gold dust falls out of it. There's only one problem with the glory cloud. It's not in here. Well, they say, well, it's a new thing because in the Old Testament, they said God would do a new thing. God did a new thing in the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial atonement on the cross. Jesus did a new thing when on the third day he rose from the dead to be the firstborn among the resurrection. He did a new thing when he opened the doors of heaven to you as a Gentile people to say, I see you in your sinful condition and I love you nonetheless. I give my life to save you. If you'll receive it, you can come on into my kingdom forever. He did a new thing, and that's new enough. And when we no longer are satisfied with what Jesus has already done, when we're looking for something else, be careful, because we're at risk of following a Jezebel spirit. I'm just saying. Now, what else does it look like? It looks like, well, this Bible has defined marriage. Well, we talk about it a little bit from time to time. I'm not embarrassed by it. I don't know that I embrace fully what it says about marriage. I know in the book of Genesis, it was, you know, Adam and Eve. Now, he's got that stupid little line. It's not Adam and Steve, you know. It's, you know, you got all that stuff. Okay, yeah, but I, I just believe God loves us, and he's open for us to redefine that, where men can marry men, women can marry women. Women who think they're men or want to become a man can marry their cat or what. I don't even know, okay? No! This book tells you everything you need to know. And when we color outside the lines of this book, we will find the reality that God is an intolerant God. Is it comfortable all the time, church? No. And if you're comfortable all the time, I'm just going to tell it like it is, you ain't living by this. If your life never feels any persecution or pushback from this world, it's because you're living in the world and not in the word. Amen, Brother Joel. It's just the truth. Okay, it just it is what it is. Let me give you an example. Kendra and I were in Alabama, and I was in sales. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm a good salesman. Lord bless me, I, I could sell some stuff. And we, I took our little girls to Hawaii, and they could care less because they didn't. They just they were under a blanket while we we're riding around the rainforest. Okay, but that's the world we lived in, and it was good. And I remember I got called to Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon would not be on the top ten most conservative cities in America. And so we were there while we were there. A manufacturer was there that I was the number one salesman. I sold a whole lot of equipment. Lord, just let me sell stuff. I don't know, but he did. So we were over there and there's all the salespeople were there. And I mean, we're sitting around this big dinner and it was a big deal, big sales meeting. And the vice president of sales ordered a round of drinks for everybody. Okay. And I know you say, well, you talk about alcohol all the time. It's because I hate it. I don't have it in mind. I hate it in your life. Run from it. It will mess your life up. I promise you. It is not good. Okay? Just say it. So I was at this meeting, and I felt a conviction of that a long time ago. So we were at this meeting. He ordered a, a, a round of drinks. He had wine glasses everywhere, and then he ordered a round of drinks. And I told him, I, said, I, don't, I don't want to drink. I wasn't going to say, all of y'all's going to hell if you drink. I, I didn't even think that. Well, I might have thought it, but it didn't say it. Okay? So uh, 
Boy, crickets, y'all didn't even like that. Boy, it's got touched close to home, a bunch of alcoholics in here. Now, so I took my wine glass. I'm going to turn that over until it falls off the table. Okay, turn my wine glass upside down, which is the way you say, I, yeah, I don't, don't want any wine. So turn my wine glass up. And so I, was, I didn't say anything about it. I just knew I didn't need it in my life. I'd been down that road, dead-end street. And I remember the vice president, who was, he was arrogant, more arrogant than me. And in front of everybody now, he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. He stopped everything. We're in this big fancy restaurant. He goes, hey, Joel, you're not going to drink with the boys? I'm like, are we in seventh grade? You know, you know, we, what is this? And so now, I'm, I, now he called all the attention to the guy with his wine glass upside down. And I said, no, no, I'm, I don't need any of that. I wasn't, I, I wasn't preachy. I just, no, I don't need any of that. Oh, why not? You got religion? No, you, huh? No, no, I got past religion a long time ago. You know, I just, I just don't drink. Well, you're away from home. Why would you not drink? He, I'm like, what are you? Jezebel? Okay. And I, he said, why do you not drink? I, well, okay, if you're going to ask the question. First of all, uh, I'm a Christian, and I just don't think it's best for my life. Okay? Number two, I've got friends of mine who are sadly addicted to alcohol and other substances, and I don't want to be like that. And I, I feel like I'm two decisions away from that anyway, so I'm going to make this first decision a good one. Number three, I'm married and have two daughters, and I don't want to do anything that's going to mess that up, and I don't want to lead my daughters to think that's a good idea in their life. Number four, I'm a deacon in my church, and I signed a commitment not to drink. Number five, I can show you in Bible where it says not even look at it when it sparkles in the glass. Number six, how many of you want? Oh, that'll be enough. <laughs> and here's what's funny. I had other guys in my group. They were deacons in their churches, but they were drinking. They're like, you know, put this under here, <laughs> you know, like that. All right. Now, why do I say that? Why do I bring that about alcohol? Because here's why. The church at Thyatira was doing some good stuff. The church at Sturkey Hills is doing some good stuff. Your pastor does some good stuff. He's persistent. He has faith. He, lo he loves well, and he works and serves hard. Our church does, and you do too. But if we're not careful, then all of a sudden, we begin to look for something else to satisfy us. And often, it's popularity. It's being in with the in crowd. And I want to tell you something. Jesus' sacrifice on a cross was not to introduce you to the in crowd. It was to introduce you to the heavenly crowd. It was to introduce you to the family of God. And what he paid on a cross, the price he paid was to help you stand strong because of his great gift. No matter what comes into our life, we have this book, and we can plant our feet and say, yeah, that I don't think is for me. But what do we do? We just waller around, float around, and drift around. And the Bible says we're called to be separate, to be sanctified, and to pursue a holy life. And nobody said it was easy. Jesus demonstrated how hard that is, but he has paved a way of how to live, how to die, and how to live again. So who was this woman Jezebel? Well, we find her in the Old Testament. She's the daughter of King of Sidon, and she married the Israelite King Ahab, and she began to teach them this new idea. And, and, and here was a people who said, well, you know, look at her. She's pretty... She's pretty uh, sophisticated. I mean, I don't think Miss I don't think Miss Jezebel's a bad person. I mean, she she seems sweet enough. I mean, look how friendly she is. You know, um, I, 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 
if we don't, you know, if we act harshly against her, we're going to be like intolerant, you know. We're going to be seem judgmental. We're going to seem like a Jezebelophobe, you know. Uh, brought that in from current, okay. We're going to be, you know, this and we're going to be that. So, so let's just embrace it all. Church, we're not called to embrace it all. We're called to impact it all. Listen, you as individuals, I don't care if you're in college, if you're in high school, middle school, elementary school, I don't care if you're a teacher, I don't care if you're a plumber, I don't care what you do for a living, you are not called to embrace. You're called to impact. The Holy Spirit of God has come into your life to see change in your world. You're you're to be salt and light. You're supposed to, to change the environment you don't have to call out on a glory cloud. You don't have you, you are the glory cloud. You are the presence of God in a dark world. That's who he has called us to be. So, we need to stop worrying about being intolerant. We have nothing to apologize for when we stand for this. Because this stands for him. And if we stand for this, standing for him, he will find us pleasing in his sight. And that's our goal. He he care less what your circle of friends looks like. He could care less how popular you are. He could care less how much money you make, whether you've got the last promotion or not. All he cares about is how you respond to the love of Jesus Christ in your life. So, So Dr. Jesus gives a physical exam. And now he says the prescription this is good. I like this part. We may just stop after this first. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 21, Jesus says, okay, I've checked you all out, giving you a full exam. He says, now, I've told you about Jezebel and how that's your problem. I have given her, Jezebel, time to repent. But she is not willing to repent of her sexual immorality. I love this verse because we get to judge somebody else. Yeah, Jezebel, go Jesus, tell her. That's what we do. And that's the truth. It's okay when God judges somebody else, isn't it? It's okay when God convicts somebody else of their sin. Isn't that good? I mean, we can just get on Jesus' bandwagon and say, that's right. You need to repent. Oh, what is repent? Metaneo. It means to turn, change your mind, turn 180 degrees. Jezebel, that's what you do. It's a picture of grace. He still loves you, even though you are Jezebel, even though you are a Baal worshiper, even though you are causing the church to be in immorality. He still loves you. He's giving you another chance. You need to repent. Doesn't that feel good? It's always good you would tell somebody else, you know, to repent, yeah? And then I'm sitting here thinking, number one, I have a confession, and I had to repent personally of this. I don't talk about repentance enough. I'm gracie, man. I am all about some grace. I'm all about forgiveness. I'm all about restoration and redemption. I don't talk about repenting enough. We have to repent to receive forgiveness and grace. But sometimes what we do is we just say, God, I'm sorry, probably because we got caught. Um, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Thank you for forgiving me. No repentance. So if we completed our prayer of forgiveness, we would say, forgive me. Thank you for your grace. Tomorrow, I'm probably going to do the same thing. I hope to remember to come and ask you for some more grace. That's not the way it works. God says, repent, change your mind. And we put this bad hook on it, like it's a bad word. Because you've heard preachers say, repent, repent, you know know what I mean? It's not a bad word. It's a beautiful word. 
It's our response to the love that he's casting toward us. That in all of his holiness and perfection and glory, he still loves us. And when we sense that presence, we, we realize, man, I am, undone. I, am un, I am a man of unclean lips. Okay? I am a man undone. Woe is me. That's, that's our response to the greatness of who he is when he comes into our circle. circle and we just say, uh, I am so messed up. I repent of my sin. I don't just say I'm sorry. I'm, t- I'm changing my mind. That's what repent means. I changed my mind. I'm turning 180 degrees from the way it was to the way you are. Now, God, you know me. I may mess it up again, but I'm repenting. I'm not, I'm not planning on doing the same thing tomorrow that I did today. And we live in a church world where we need more repentance. We need more pastoral repentance. We need more deacon repentance. We need more teacher and leader repentance. We need more repentance from those who care for our babies and our children. We need more repentance from everybody who claims to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And you may be sitting here today in your religious piety thinking, well, I just don't feel like I need to repent of anything. Number one, you may be lost. Number two, you may be so calloused to the presence and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you wouldn't know the Holy Spirit if he showed up and stared you in the face. And we got to get back to a place where we say, God, I changed my mind. I don't need that garbage on the Internet anymore. I don't need to be flirting around on the job anymore. I don't need to be losing my temper anymore. I don't need to be using that vulgar profanity again. I don't need to be saying your name in vain again. I, don't, I need to stop worrying about myself so much and look at this world that's lost and hell-bound. God, I repent. I, I want to be different tomorrow. I want it to change. So then Dr. Jesus goes on from, to the next thing, and he says, I've got a prognosis of how this thing's going to play out. He says, look, I'm going to throw Jezebel onto a bed of violent illness. And those who commit adultery with her are in are into terrible suffering unless they repent also of her deeds. Furthermore, I will strike her followers with a deadly disease, and then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts. I will repay each one of you what your deeds deserve. He says it's not just Jezebel, the person. It's all those who embrace that doctrine, that theology, that spirit, of Jezebel. I want you to know that we will never change what we choose to never confront. If we never call it what it is, we'll never see change. And I'm here as your pastor, okay, that can tell you there's things in my life that this week I had to confront because I want change. I, mean, I love where I'm at with the Lord Jesus. I really do. I'm, I'm more in love with Jesus than I've ever been in my life. I feel his presence more than I've felt it in my whole life. I see him doing things, and I just smile at the, at the glory and the greatness of who he is. But there's still stuff in my life that needs to change. And the only way I'll ever see change is if I let the Holy Spirit convict me, and if I confront it, and if I repent of it, change my mind, and say, God, help me not do that. Okay? And I believe it's true for all of us. This word repentance is not a bad word. Listen to what Acts 3, 19 says. It says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be 
wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He'll refresh you. He'll revive you. He'll bring you back in fellowship. He'll make your apathetic, lukewarm, miserable Christianity into something that's vibrant and alive and refreshing and full of joy. And, and you know what that feels like if you're saved. That moment when you feel so sinful and shameful before God, and then you feel his love, just like, like Joe and them were singing, that I've never felt a love like this before. And you just feel it, man, just washing through your soul. And you're like, wow. Okay? And he says, that's where you're supposed to live, not experience 20 years ago and never go back. That's what you're supposed to experience every day. And then he gives a promise, Dr. Jesus does. He says in verse 24, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, all who do not hold to the teaching, who have learned the so-called deep secrets of Satan, to you I say, I do not put any additional burden on you. However, hold on to what you have until I come. And to the one who conquers and who continues in my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He says, when I come back to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years, you're going to be part of the team. I got a job for you. I look forward to that. I love serving the Lord. I do. I, I got called out of the secular world, and God called me into ministry, and it's an unusual path that he chose for me. I am delighted that he called me to do, that I get to do what I do. It ain't always fun. It's certainly not easy for somebody as ignorant as me, but I love the fact that he called me out to do this thing. And when I read a passage like this, it, it, it encourages my heart that one day it never ends, that I will always be a part of his agenda. I'll always be a part of his kingdom. He'll always be able to choose to use me in that. I, I, that just really excites me. And so, so how do we respond to this kind of thing. We have to ask ourselves a question, believers, church. Have we stepped outside the covenantal relationship with the Lord Jesus? Has God gotten to a place where he's not enough anymore? That we have to have something else in addition to what he's doing in our life. That what God did 6,000 years ago throughout Scripture is no longer enough. What, what God did in our hearts when we got saved, it's just not enough anymore. What God is doing in the life of our church, it's just not enough. It's just not enough. And I want to tell you, He is enough. You don't need anything else because He is enough. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, and we're almost finished, says, For by Him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So is he enough? He is way, way more than enough. Now let me unpack how much he is. So you will know who the God is that you claim to be your God. There's a new book been released by J.D. Greer, and it's called Not God Enough. And in that, he talks about taking his family to Africa. And in Africa, where there's no institutional or industrial lighting, it's extremely dark. And he goes out one, side, one night, and he realizes the stars, man, seem to be just exploding from the sky. And it just reminded him of the glory and the greatness of God. And 
And, and, and some of you have done that. Uh, my daughters and I used to do it all the time. We were just amazed. We'd lay on the trampoline. I, I told you, you know, I'd lay there and I'd act like I knew, oh, yeah, that's the little dipper. That's the big dipper. Yeah, that's the Chinese uh, chopsticks, you know. That's the, you know, that's the donkey from uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh, you know. I mean, I just make it up, you know. And they knew I didn't know what I was talking about. We didn't care. We're laying on the trampoline in the dark, staring at the greatness and the glory of God, Okay. And so J.D. Greer talks about these stars that just explode from the sky. And so I, I did a little research. Do you know how many stars you can actually see? Some of you know that. Some of y'all are intelligent, okay? 9,096. From a pinnacle on this earth in the darkest sky, the naked eye can only see 9,096 stars. I thought there was like 10 billion I could see with my naked eye. They're not bright enough for you to see. Your eyes aren't good enough for you to see them. 9,096 well, how many stars are there? Well, now, and it's always growing because they're inventing new telescopes, they, scientists tell us that there are um, over a septillion stars in the sky. Se septillion. You know how many that is? No, you don't. <laughs> yeah, too many zeros for our heads to calculate, okay? So, so, so the God that loves you, the God who created you, the God who died for you and rose again for you, the God who loves you on your most unlovable day, the God who wants to carry you to glory for all of eternity, that God, how big is that God? Is he enough? A septillion stars. I want you to understand how big our God is. Everybody's familiar with millions, okay? That used to be rich. Now if you describe somebody that's got money, you say, he's a billionaire with a B. You know what I'm talking about? And then you got a trillion. We know that one. That's national debt, okay? And, and then you got a quadrillion and then a quintillion and then a heptillion, then a septillion. It's the seventh order of the number. How big are these numbers? Well, a million seconds. <whistles> Long time, right? Yeah, 11 days. 11 days, million seconds. Well, what if we change and add one zero and put it in the billion category? How many days are there in a billion seconds? 32 years. All we did was change to zero. Okay, let's add another zero and call it a trillion seconds. You know how many years a trillion seconds is compared to a million, which is 11 days? 32,000 years. And stars in the sky are the seventh order of the number, a septillion. I want you to look at your neighbor and say there's no room for Jezebel. Tell him. And now tell him your God is way more than enough.